0: Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal
1: and may lose value. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater. And this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up. And call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com.
2: Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and
3: 10 gig data plans with a limited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon
2: January 2024.
4: Hey, it's Will Friedle. And Sabrina Bryan. And we're the hosts of the new podcast, Magical Rewind.
2: You may know us from some of your favorite childhood TV movies like... My Date with the President's Daughter.
4: And the Cheetah Girls movies.
2: Together we're sitting down to watch all the movies you grew up with and chat with some of your favorite stars and crew that made these
4: iconic movies happen. So kick back, grab your popcorn, and join us. Listen to Magical Rewind on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there
1: this is wins and losses with clay travis Clay talks with the most entertaining people in sports entertainment and business now here's clay
4: travis Welcome in, uh, the newest Wins and Losses podcast. Uh, If you haven't signed up for it yet to go listen to everybody else, I think you're going to love them, whether it's Jason Whitlock, whether it's Washington State football coach Mike Leach, commissioner of the Southeastern Conference Greg Sankey. We're kind of intersecting the world of sports, media, politics, and business and telling stories about how people ended up where they did the wins and losses along the way for the process of uh, their lives. And this week's guest is Dave Rubin. He's at Ruben Report on Twitter, he's a man of many talents, uh, and you guys may have watched us together on YouTube on his show before. We've had a lot of great conversations. We met a couple of years ago during the uh, the, the fallout of my uh, my comments on CNN. Uh, would you have ever known about me if you hadn't seen that clip? Did you had you been cognizant of me existing before that? I think
3: I had come across your name a couple of times. Yeah. I don't think I was following you yet. Right. But when I saw that moment with you and Brooke Baldwin. I was kind of like, whatever's going on here. And, yeah. and as you know, I, I am a sports guy, but just because my life has gotten so busy now, right. and the politics thing has just kind of taken over, like I just don't have as much time for that anymore. Right. But I was like, whatever this guy is up to, that moment was so exactly... Everything that I'm talking about all the time related to free speech, related yes. to outrage culture, related right. to the mob, related to the lunacy of the media and the craptastic programming of CNN. Yes. And all of those things that I was like, I've got to talk to this guy. And then it, what was interesting was then when I had you on the show, which was just within a couple weeks of that, yes. um, quickly I was like, whoa, it's not just that he gets it, but we do both occupy what I think is becoming a really increasing space of, of people that are desperately trying to find some sanity here yes. and not trying to ransack everything that is so good about this country. So, uh, so yeah, I don't think I really knew who you were before then, but... But since then, yeah.
4: It's been incredibly beneficial for my career, uh, and a lot of people listening right now may have initially discovered me then. Obviously, it's not like I hadn't been in the public arena before, but it's so hard to cut through, you know, in general, and make a name good or bad for yourself in such a uh, complicated and competitive culture. I wasn't planning on that happening, but I definitely leaned into it. Yeah. Well, Uh, also, the
3: way they book those shows is also an impossibly difficult thing to figure out. So, for example, I just told you, so so we're in my studio right now, and we just tape my show. And I told you I'm doing Tucker tonight on Fox and I go on Fox now probably once or twice a week. I'm not paid or anything. I'm not a contributor, but I always find that they let me say whatever I want. Tucker puts me on live. We don't don't do a pre-interview anymore. There's none of that. They trust me. I can say whatever I want. I can agree with him, disagree with him, the rest of it. But then people will say to me, well, Ruben, you don't go on CNN. You don't go on MSNBC. And it's like, they don't invite me. You you want me to just, I literally took a picture when I was in New York last week. I don't know if you saw this on Twitter. I tweeted a Picture of a selfie sitting downstairs at the Time Warner Center, which is where CNN's upstairs. I was, yes. I was at Whole Foods. Take a picture of myself. I said, "Hey, I'm here." I'm you happy to come to on. Yeah, you know, but they, but they don't want to. Yes. And, and really, that does. Uh, get to so many things that we talk about about which way tolerance is sort of
4: veering these and it's
3: not the side that you think or that you've been trained to think that it's going in all
4: right so i want to get into your background because one of the things we love to do on this show is figure out how someone ends up where they are so kind of to set the scene for people listening right now we are sitting in your studio in your los angeles uh, abode here which is phenomenal you do a couple of different really popular shows on youtube you distribute them uh you've had a tremendous amount of success. You're working on a book now. Uh, You've got a lot of opportunities. You just mentioned you're going on Tucker Carlson. You've got a ton of different media opportunities all happening at the same time, right? which is a good place to be on. The last time I saw you, we were in uh, Washington, D.C., and you and I and Candace Owens all went out for dinner together. To Um, the Trump Steakhouse, or or the
3: Trump Hotel, whatever steakhouse. The Trump Hotel Steakhouse
4: there. We had an incredible conversation. It was an awesome time. Um, And so I want to circle back to you grew up where? like the very beginning. You grew up in New York, is that right? I'm a
3: true New Yorker. Yes. When people say they're New Yorkers, there's very few actual New Yorkers, but I was born in Brooklyn before it was cool, hipster Brooklyn. It was still crappy Brooklyn. That's where my dad and my grandparents were from. Uh, When I was three years old, we moved out to Long Island, which was, that was the dream for, if you were were a a city, New York City, or Brooklyn, or Queens person, the dream was you could move to Long Island, maybe to Westchester, or some suburban part of Jersey. Uh, My folks moved to, Out to a little town called Syosset, which is basically smack dab in the middle of Long Island. Yes. uh, Exit 43 on the LIE. And uh, so I grew up in Long Island. I went to college in upstate New York, SUNY Binghamton. My dad was very clear when I was applying for colleges. I wanted to go to Syracuse because I wanted to be a sports broadcaster. Yeah. I wanted to be on ESPN. And Marv Albert went there and Bob Costas went there. Mike and, Tirico, and, and a lot Tirico of guys. And yes. all those guys went there. And my dad said, if you go to a SUNY school, meaning an in-state State University of New York school, we'll pay for it because it's about nine grand all yes. in. A year, and he said, "If you go to a private school or out of state, it's on you." Yep. I think maybe he was going to make up the difference. You know, he would have taken care of the nine, and then I would have had pay over. And Syracuse at the time. Was about twenty five grand. It's probably something like sixty grand. Right? No kidding. Yeah. And I remember thinking, I was like, I would love to go there. I want to be on Sports Center. It was the heyday of Sports Center. Yes. When, uh, Kilbourne was was new and fresh and funny before Olbermann went it crazy. Was before but Olber- yeah, he was great. Him and Dan Patrick, they were that incredible. Was, that thing was yes. amazing. I loved every moment of it because it was funny. It was edgy. It was irrever- irreverent. But basically, I was like, well, I can either go to college for free and hopefully figure out a path in life, if I was even thinking about it that much at 17 years old. Right. Or I can go to this place, but then have $100,000 worth of debt. If I had only known now that the Democrats were going <laughs> to you know, pay off my debt, maybe I would have done it. But uh, And then I lived, after that, I lived in Manhattan, uh, pretty much right out of college after a year back with my with my folks. Lived in Manhattan for about 15 years, and that's when I started doing stand-up and all that. And lived there until uh, February 1st, 2013, when I moved to L.A. And this is like Hotel California. You can get in, but you can never get out.
4: So all right. So that is a... Uh, that's a an awesome run through. Now, at SUNY Binghamton, what did you yeah. major in? And how would you describe your academic performance while there?
5: Yeah,
3: I majored in political science. So I like to say that Ben Shapiro and I are basically the only two poli-sci
4: majors that yes. actually use their, their poli-sci the yes.
3: degree. Um, but I remember that most of my political science classes Everything that we were taught, it was like, but none of this works. Yeah, right. It, it really was like that, like very theoretical.
4: Yeah, like, yeah. like
3: they, but they'd be saying these things. They would be saying these things about this is how the government's supposed to work, yeah. and separation of powers, and all these. Things. But but they would always veer at the end towards, but none of it really works this right. way, you know. And but I I didn't have, you know, a lot of people I think have sort of uh, or younger kids now. Like when I go to colleges now, I meet these kids and even younger high school kids who are so passionate, so driven. When I think that that a college kid is coming up to me and going, whoa, oh, you know, I just read Jordan Peterson's book. Yeah, and right. I'm watching your show. And I listened to Sam Harris talk about atheism and Joe Rogan and da, da 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 And that they're putting so much investment in their in their intellectual worth. Yeah, it's amazing. Worth. It's incredible. I mean, I truly, I spent four years of college. I was smoking pot. I, I was a huge pothead. I, I was
4: smoking pot playing, playing video, video. Games What was your, what was your basketball. Those top, are, top video games?
3: Well, I was playing all the EA sports games right. back then, so it was like NBA Live ninety five and NHL ninety. So
4: we are close to the same and, like basically yeah. the, the college, like the video game, yeah. the sports. Like so you love basketball?
3: Basketball is my real sport. So Yeah, I, I see basketball the basketball goal all in your
4: in your office here. So yeah. you would you play intramural basketball and everything else? Played,
3: I played every league that you could possibly play. Yeah. And my, my one regret, you know, I really don't have regrets in life because most because I'm in a good place now and I view yeah. the, I view the mistakes or whatever as things that ultimately ended up getting me here. My one regret is that I didn't pick up basketball earlier? Yeah, because because I was really good for for a while. I'm I'm about five eleven. Yeah, um, I'm relatively fit, or at least in my heyday, really was. <laughs> and I, I had a great three point shot, yeah. finger roll. I really could play, but I really never picked up a ball till about eighth or ninth grade.
4: Yeah, so, so by you, you could have started, yeah, at a younger age. Yeah,
3: when 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 I really was good in high school, I was already a senior, and I yeah. tried out for the team yeah. for the high school team, and the the coach of the C of the Uh, High school basketball team was my years before had been my elementary school coach, uh, elementary school gym
4: teacher. Yeah, yeah.
3: And I remember him coming up to me, Mr. Myers, and saying, "You know, he's like, he's like, David. You know, when you were a kid, you were this little scrawny nothing. He's like, you've got skills now, but you're too old. Right. He like was completely honest with me." and i sort of appreciated the honesty but so i really was it was more of a recreational thing my whole life yeah um yeah but i love basketball more than anything else if it, that would be i should be in the WNBA. that's <laughs> as per our earlier hey maybe you could if you changed yeah, your gender that, 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 uh, now that's let, the plan if this whole yeah, thing, this runs, whole thing you,
4: know? you can be you can be jo- joanna man now yeah. uh let's go to uh you you live at home for a year like a lot of people do after school yeah. do you have any idea what you were going to do so you got a poly funny, sci degree.
3: Poly sci degree, and in that year, well, I was a video game guy. So if you love video games, what do you do? I started working at Electronics Boutique, which you may know as oh, GameStop. Yeah. Oh, or, yeah. Or yeah, you're yeah, my yeah. age, basically. So yeah. Electronics Boutique, which most of the people listening to this became working at a mall. GameStop. Or it? So I was in the Broadway Mall in Hicksville, Long Island, and uh, I was assistant manager and I moved more Pokemon Gold than anybody <laughs> in ninety seven. Um, so I did that and you know, you quickly find out, I don't even know what the hell I was thinking. I just needed a job, you know, right. I needed a job. But I remember thinking, oh, I love video games. Like, I'll be a video game salesman. Like, yeah. that seemed like a sensible thing. But then you quickly realize, I mean, it's just a real ta- a retail job. And like most things, and I'm sure you feel this way a little bit about sports, that the more that you get in on it, the more that you see that, that dirty underside of it, yeah. or it has nothing to do with the things that you love about it. So, right. like, selling video games has nothing to do with, T- telling people why you love playing ghouls and ghosts or right. Super Mario Brothers, you know. So, uh, what I started doing though was literally the last thing that I did in college, senior year. I had, my finals were over. I had yep. already my bags were packed. I was heading home. I had to finish to finish out uh, my required courses. I'd take a public speaking class. Yeah, and all I had to do was give a ten minute talk on whatever whatever it is that I want to talk about. And I gave a 10-minute talk... about what it was like to be in college And I did it, you remember Bill Cosby himself It was his great HBO special from 1983 Yes Did, did you ever see it, that's chocolate cake And the yeah. dentist and all that And I remember seeing that as a 7 year old I remember seeing that in my parents house In the in the living room And I remember being buckled over as a 7 year old In laughter, I could not It was the funniest yeah, thing yeah. I'd ever seen The pain in my stomach So basically I decided to do, basically do a stand up routine For 10 minutes and I sat just like Bill Cosby Sitting that entire routine Uh, And I told them what it was like to be in college. And I talked about hooking up and I talked about drugs and I talked about going to class and blah, blah, blah. And half the class was laughing and half the class was looking at me like I was crazy. The the professor completely thought I was nuts. Um, But from there, I was like, whoa, that, that feeling of making people laugh. There's nothing better than that. And a week later... I was at my first comedy club that I had never even been to a stand-up club. They said, you know, I called this place New York Comedy Club. They said, if you can bring five paying customers, we'll throw you on stage. And that's what I did. And I was hooked. I I was beyond hooked. I mean, like a a drug in the best sense of it, hooked.
4: So how often would you be doing stand-up comedy?
3: So the first couple years, I mean, this is very similar to most of how comedy went back then so comedy obviously like most industries has had its ups and its downs and everything And most people when they think of like the golden years of comedy you really think of like sort of the late 70s 80s into the very early part of the 90s where every comic basically from louis anderson and tim allen and ellen degeneres and jerry seinfeld and richard lewis basically you could get on the tonight show you could work the clubs for a certain amount of years You could perfect a five-minute set, and then if you got on The Tonight Show and Johnny liked you, if Johnny Carson liked you—
4: Called you over to the chair. I mean, everyone
3: knows this, and and he called you over to the chair, and then you were golden. You'd get a sitcom, and you were good to go. I mean, this happened with Roseanne. We could do the list. Yes. This happened with everybody. When I started—so I was out of college in 98, so I started in June of 98, so it's 21 years basically this month. Um, that bu- that bubble had burst, I mean, majorly. They they always look back, the, the night that they say the comedy bubble burst is when Andrew Dice Clay uh, sold out Madison Square Garden. And basically everyone was announcing his jokes with him. You know, Jack yeah. and Jill went up the hill. Yeah. And then everyone tells the rest of the joke, you know. And they, and that, that was sort of symbolic of how the whole thing crumbled. And then comedy clubs started closing all over right. the place. Because also television made it more uh, ubiquitous so you didn't have to go to clubs anymore. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's just like anything else. We're, we're in industries right now that are massively changing. Yes. Right? So um, so what happened was to go to comedy clubs uh, or to perform at comedy clubs for a while, it was bringer shows. So if you just brought a certain amount of bodies and right out of college, as someone that grew up in New York, I had bodies. So yeah. for the first two years, I could just get people a couple times a week to just show up. But eventually you run out of steam on that. And then... Uh, so that lasted, let's say, two years of a couple nights
4: a week. And you're working f- anything else or just Yeah,
3: that? so I was working as, uh, so I did the video game thing for a while. I interned at The Daily Show also a year, oh, okay. a year after college. I forged a letter from Binghamton University. I faked their yeah. letterhead, and I said that I was a professor in the communications department or something, and I recommended myself to get <laughs> to get an internship at The Daily Show, so I'm interning at The Daily Show during the day, which was a re- really interesting time to be there, because John had just taken over from Killborn, Yes, and I loved The Daily Show from Kilbourne, because I right. loved Kilborn, uh, but it was a really bizarre time, because try to picture two public people with with different uh, personas than those two guys. Yeah. Kilbourne is the most smug, yes. you know, into himself, whatever, John is the most self-deprecating, yeah ever. so the staff was in upheaval and writers right. were getting fired left and right and all that um but then over the years of doing stand-up, I mean, I did every odd job you can think of. I mean, well, first off, I cleaned up comedy clubs and cleaned bathrooms. and Literally chairs. the
4: lowest kind of level jobs. I, mean. I would
3: have done anything to get on stage, and I did do anything. I mean, I, I bartended. I, I uh, worked at catering companies. I used to hand out merchandise for promotion companies on the streets. Just anything I could do to make a buck to go by. For one year, I, I had an office job at a PR company in, in New York. I have literally no idea what business
4: they in <laughs>
3: because my head wasn't there. Right. I, somehow I got the job and I showed up and I guess I faked it enough to
4: to be able to keep the job
3: yeah but I have no idea what was so going you're, on there. it's
4: a hand-to-mouth existence at the time too right like oh you're yeah. making like I mean I was making nothing I, do you I remember what your rent was like how many roommates did you have like uh, so when I finally
3: so then I left my parents house and then when I had that office job so I had you know maybe I was making 45 grand right or something like that I had a couple roommates on, a, on an apartment on 90th and 1st so pretty far up yep. Upper East Side um which was a really interesting place 90th and first because try to think about new york city for a second so if new york city the subway up there is 86th and lex 90th and it was basically 90th and york which is one yeah. more east than first so it was basically as far as you could get from a subway in new york city because 86 that means i had to go 87 88 89 90 then i had to go lex third second first york It's a long walk. It's a long walk for for a New Yorker, especially when you're working at a job you don't want to be at and and the rest of it. Um, But anyway, then, uh, and I just did all sorts of, just any job, like name a job, like I pretty much did it. Uh, But then what I had to do to get on stage, once you sort of age out of the bringer thing, your your friends are like, yeah, I've heard all those jokes, you know, I don't want to come to shows anymore. And it's nothing to do with whether you're good or not. It's just like it just is. The other way you get on stage is is you bark. You hand hand out tickets. And uh, you hand out tickets usually in Times Square is where most of it went down. And I'm
4: sure you've been harassed. Oh, yeah. So you did that. You would stand in Times Square and like...
3: I did that for like eight or 10 years, six, six nights a week, sometimes twice a night, two hours a night. And often in the early years of that, you didn't get paid either. So you're dragging people into these clubs just with the hope of getting, you know, seven minutes of stage time. Right. And I did that for a couple of years. And then this was the first moment that my, my business sense that I think has led me here now kicked in. I realized that I was out here with all these other comics, some of them who, whom were pretty good. Um, most of the guys from my crew have all disappeared. And, yeah. and it's just a sad thing about comedy that the, often the best guys just they can't hack it anymore. Like the, 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 the true artists and the ones that are truly doing something amazing get to a point where it just breaks them. So out of my crew, um, we had some really, really talented people. The only one who really broke through, I I guess I have now, but the only other one, uh, Melissa Roush, who you probably know as Bernadette on uh, Big Bang Theory. Yeah. Um, She was in my crew. I remember seeing her the first night, and I said to her, you are going to be the star because she could do voices. um, Right. She was was awesome. Just a great talent. She's a great girl. Um, But basically, just uh, barking, handing out these tickets, and then finally I was like, why am I doing this so that somebody else can be taking all the cash here. So me and a couple other comics, um, we found a failing restaurant. It was called Joe Franklin's Memory Lane. Joe Franklin was an old-school New York, sort of like a Larry King type, but like yeah. a local, local guy. And he had this restaurant that just was just every night. going to, yeah. And they had a back room, about 80 seats. And we started a six-night-a-week, two-show-a-night comedy club there. It became so successful that we ended up taking over the entire restaurant. And then we had two shows going. And then that became so successful that there's a TGI Fridays on 50th and 7th, which is the world's largest TGI. Yeah, yeah, guys. I know exactly where it is. Yeah, yeah. And it's right I think
4: ne- I might have even eaten you, there. You've there probably eaten yeah, yeah. there,
3: yeah. And you've probably eaten there. And right. You, what your audience may know it as is the building next to it is now Barclay's building, which was Lehman Brothers before the crash and everything. It's a really iconic building because it's glowing and crazy lights and everything. But anyway, uh, there was a room down there, about 150 seats. So we left our B-list comics at Joe Franklin's comedy club. We took our best guys, went there, six nights a week two shows a night so i was basically running two clubs i was making real money we were splitting the first time
4: you actually started to make real money
3: first time i started making real money i was we were splitting money between the comics so comics started making money we had no management so i was doing 25 minute sets when most guys were doing six minute sets yeah we did we did great stuff and we actually became so successful that the reason it ended was because of our success because then the big clubs realized whoa these comics, they're just dragging people in off the street. You know, we're literally just pulling people in. Yeah, yeah. You know? And then the uh, it was the Laugh Factory. We were on 50th and 7th. The Laugh Factory opened up a couple blocks south, and then Broadway Comedy Club, I think, opened a couple blocks north, and then they just had more money behind them and had more an army of people right. that could hand out tickets. So they just nipped us off, and then the whole thing crumbled, and then I moved on to some other stuff. But I, I look back on it with, like, tremendous fondness now like those are the good old days
1: be sure to catch live editions of outkick the coverage with clay travis weekdays at 6 a.m eastern 3 a.m pacific
0: this episode is brought to you by navy federal credit union and navy federal it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years and not just help them but do everything to make sure they not only grow but flourish that's why navy federal credit union has all kinds of great savings and investment options like share certificates with sky high rates so don't hesitate Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured.
1: Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call.
2: Don't spend another night dreaming of better sleep. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com forward slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. That's dot com forward slash iHeart. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details.
4: We're talking to Dave Rubin at Rubin Show on Twitter. This is the Wins and Losses Podcast. I'm Clay Travis. Do you remember having a moment where you're like, I don't know if I'm going to continue as a comedian. Like, was there any kind of epiphany moment where you were like this, and, and, and maybe what age? Like, how, how does that happen? How do you end up where you are now? Because you obviously, in order to be a comedian, you have to really put your heart and soul into it, right? Into performing you, you, for you years. To,
3: you have to give it everything you've got. And, you know, it's funny, because most of your audience listening to this, if they know me, they probably don't know me from comedy. Yeah. It's actually only in the last year now that I'm getting back into comedy, and I'm selling out clubs across the country. And I'm telling you, truly, Clay, you got to come sometime. Yeah, I'll bring you on stage. With yeah, me, yeah. I usually, what I usually do now, because I'm selling out these clubs, I do about an hour solo, and I'm really just messing with the crowd. I do a ton of right. politically incorrect stuff, and 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 talk about all social justice and all this nonsense. Yeah, that yeah talk yeah. about. And then usually I bring on a friend at the end. So I've brought on Jordan Peterson, I have yeah. brought on uh, the Weinstein brothers, and Ben Shapiro, and a bunch of people, and I just get people to, to see us in a, in a different way. Yeah, uh, we'll do it. So we'll do it. Oh, in Nashville I love to sometime, do it at some point. I, yeah, I the next get, time you're in Nashville. Yeah, 100%. I need to get back to Nashville. That, that picture, by the way, in my bathroom, that's from... The
0: Ryman. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Um, so I remember right around when these two clubs opened on both sides of us, and suddenly our numbers were dropping, and we were going from 150 people at a show, then it was 80, then it was yeah. 40, then, and then suddenly it was like seven, Yeah. and the money was gone, and it was depressing and all that. I remember thinking one day, like, could it be possible that I've given everything I have into this and I'm good at it and I'm good I was I, one time I was I, they told me I don't, I don't know if this is totally true but I was the youngest comic ever passed at the Comedy Cellar which was the Comedy Cellar down on Bleecker Street It's like that's like the primo club yeah. that's like the really the one that matters in the city that's like the hip cool club and I was right out of college got passed there immediately I, if anything I got passed too early because you should have a m- lot more years yeah. behind you to really do it at that level um But I remember thinking, could I give something, everything I've got, be good at it, have done everything, be doing something different and real and all of those things, and then have it not work? Could that be what reality is? And when I started coming in, when you start, I think everyone has some moment like that in their life, when that thing that you've believed in comes into conflict with reality. And I remember there was this other comic his name is Brian Baumley. He, he was a decent comic, not great, decent. Yeah. I, I've seen him a couple times over the last couple of years, and he's, he's just a normal guy now. He's got a regular job and a family, he lives yeah. in Jersey, he's happy. Um, but one of those nights, as that was kind of all crumbling around us, he said to me, and he almost had a tear in his eye. He said, Dave, this wasn't supposed to happen to you. And I was like, "Ooh." like he kind of was looking around like yeah some of these guys are good yeah right i'm okay but he's like dave you're good like this wasn't supposed to happen and i remember like like i felt a pain like in my heart like holy shit
4: it's and you're how old at this point
3: this is probably like late late twenties. Yeah. This might have been even early thirties at this point. Yeah, it was probably early thirties. Yeah, I mean,
4: you're grinding away for a decade at this, like yeah. giving it your all.
3: I gave it everything I had, and then and then from that point, then I started realizing, okay, there's got to be a different way to do this, and this is where I think it makes sense, sort of how I ended up here, because then I started realizing, you know, none of these guys are getting on the Tonight Show anymore. You know, like when yeah. Leno, when Leno took over the Tonight Show. There's no stories of Leno putting the comic next to him and the guy getting the show. Maybe that's a fault of Leno. Maybe it's just the way the business was changing, the way the economics of people getting less sitcoms because there were more reality shows. I mean, whatever it is. But I started thinking, this doesn't make sense. You've got guys in comedy clubs all trying to perfect this five-minute set so that they can get on a show that doesn't put them on so that they can get a sitcom that doesn't even exist anymore, you know? And from that, I was like, there's got to be another way to do this. And also the way I had always done stand-up. Yeah. People used to say to me, like, do you have a tight five? I'd be like, I don't have a tight five, but I have a freaking great half hour. I've yeah. got a messy half hour that will be like nothing you've ever seen before. And I, and I never had any stage fright or... I could right. get up in front of a thousand people and just... Whatever popped into my head, I could just kind of figure out something. It's just the way I've always done it, and every you know everyone does it different. There's a did you ever see the uh, the Seinfeld documentary comedian? If, yes, he put it out yes. after when he. Uh, finish the sitcom, there's a great moment with him and Gary Shandling, and they're driving to a gig, and Jerry's got his notepad, and it's like, you know, like, Hitler would have been proud of, yeah, like, the yeah. precision, you know, and Gary and G- Jerry turns to Gary, and he's like, what do you have? And Gary pulls out, like, this crumbled piece of paper in his <laughs> pocket, and he's like, I think I was going to do this, you know, and, like, so I was much more that yeah. version of it, and it just depends what you like and what your creative process right. is and all that, um, but then, it was at the beginnings of when MySpace was starting and I heard this word podcast and a few other things. And then I just started just being a little more active in that world. I thought if I could just get a couple followers in this world, now Twitter's starting. Yeah. If I could get a couple of people to start following me, well, you go to a comedy club. It's like no matter how funny you are, they're going to go, ah, you know, that guy who went on fifth out of the eight, you know, he had brown hair, he was kind of funny, but they're not going to remember your, you could right. kill, yeah. you could, you could do a Carlin-esque
4: perfect, Perfection.
3: Yeah, yeah, and they just won't remember who you are, it's just how it is, so I started thinking, you know, if I could start getting some followers on some of these things, and then people, then then tweet out a little silly thing here and there, that actually starts having more worth. Than, than doing the clubs every night. So I started moving in that direction. Eventually I started doing a podcast um, and then some of those things started leading ultimately to what got me to LA, which was doing a show with the Young Turks, which now really feels like a whole lifetime ago and that's only six and a half years ago.
4: So. As part of that process, you start. Let's go back uh, yeah. personally. So uh, you're gay. I don't think that's yeah. a, a massive secret. Yeah. When did you? It's by far <laughs> the most boring part. Yeah. Of me, yeah. But when did you like sort of beco- come out? For lack yeah. of a better term, was this during college? Was it before college? Like, um,
3: well, it's funny. I, you know, I'm, you know, I'm writing my book right now. Yeah. So yeah. I, I, it's not that personal, my book. But I am actually relating. One of the things that I'm really trying to do is relate being in the closet about sexuality related to a political closet yeah. that I think so many people are in right now. I'm right. sure a huge amount of your listeners are in that where they're going, I have a couple thoughts that are outside of wokedom yes. and they're calling me a I Nazi. don't
4: think Donald Trump is Hitler. Yeah. And it's like you maybe think that but you're like I better not say that at work because you know And like,
3: think about that. Think think how what that does to the average person when you can't say something that you think. right? So that's what I'm really trying to do with a good portion of the book is is relate these two things.
4: Because you're a gay comedian and most people when they hear gay comedian, they think like, oh, that guy's got to be like the wokest person on the planet, right? And, And you're probably surrounded by, well, I bet what you saw even from the comedy sphere is, a lot of those comedians also have thoughts that are similar to yours but they might not be f- comfortable saying them oh, right? Yeah. In, that, well, in that entertainment universe.
3: Well, it's funny because when you ask me about my comedy life, like the, to me the gay part doesn't even come up because A, because I never addressed it. I, yeah. I was still, I was closeted mess, I was struggling in my own way. You know, the yeah. thing is, That I truly feel like it. I feel more comfortable here talking to you like this than if I was doing a like a gay podcast or something like that. I would personally much rather talk about sports and politics or video games or whatever than I don't care about the housewives of.
4: Bel Air or those things. <laughs> it's a I great don't. show, by the way. And is I that, know, is that by, a, it's close is that, to that name, but my wife a is a huge fan of all the Housewives yeah. shows, so I see them all. Well, when I had a but show, that's I'm, Andy Cohen's universe, right? And a lot of people be like, oh, Andy Cohen is a uh, gay comedian. Oh, he's incredibly woke or whatever the personality might be. Yeah. But it's actually, I mean, and the reason why I bring it up is because I just find it fascinating because it cuts across so many different arenas, right? Oh, yeah. And like, uh, so... Were you conscious? You said you're a poli sci major. Yeah. Uh, So I didn't even, you didn't even answer. Like, so did, when did you officially?
3: Yeah. Sort of. Well, well. so first off, just quickly on Andy yeah. Cohen. Um, so I had him on my show. So my podcast was doing pretty well. And then it got picked up by SiriusXM. XM. Yeah. And we were doing it was sort of it, well, it was on the out cue channel. Which yeah. The gay channel. Yeah. You know, gay people should have a separate. <laughs> yeah. Radio. Yeah. Right. We right, separate right, 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 right. We should have a separate channel, you know. And I always wanted to be on the political channels, but they put us there. But I had Andy Cohen on a couple of times and I've never cared about any of that Bravo nonsense. Yeah. Yeah. But the one thing that I did like about him, even though I don't care about any of the stuff that he's doing, when I interviewed him, I think twice, both times in person, and I thought, this guy, he really cares about what he's doing. I don't care about it, but I don't have to. He has to. He really does. And I thought,
4: all right. I can accept that. He does a great job, that show, but he is also is great on Stern. Um, but it is interesting how, you know, like the Ellen DeGeneres of the world, sort of, you almost think if you're a gay comedian that everybody thinks in that same way, right? Yeah.
3: Well, there's, there's a couple of pieces of that. So first off, um, especially at the time, and even now, when gay people are on television, you're either like this asexual, neutered nothing. So like right. Anderson Cooper. Yes. You know what I mean? You have no idea really what he thinks about anything. Right. He would never, you know, on New Year's, he's allowed to have a drink, and then he has a lisp <laughs> for a split second. Right. Right. I mean? Right. Right. But. but there's just like this.
4: He's cured, the voice of God, and in like his sexuality has almost no impact at all in right. his overall. Right.
3: Now, I, look, I'm not saying you're, uh, you're yeah. he's a newscaster, so I'm not saying his sexuality should, but there's a right. certain. The thing that he sort of is is this very asexual, neither here nor there anything. I right. Think. Um, and that's sort of what they like. So you can either be an over the top gay. So, yeah. there, so in comedy especially, it was like you could be Mario Cantone and just singing show tunes. Right. And, this, and there's many versions of that. You could be Paul Lynn. Sort of before right. our time, you could be this over the top gay thing. Otherwise, there was no space. So I remember when I when I came out professionally, and the only reason I did was because I couldn't live with myself. Anymore. Right? I mean, I just genuinely. I, I, it's not that I was doing a lot of jokes about dating chicks or anything, but sometimes I did and I, and I started just hating myself for right. it, you know. I, I was also also in a good, normal, functioning relationship. relationship, and so my life track, which had always been behind my career track, well then, as I told you, the career thing started to stall because the clubs were closing, and then my life was getting good, and when my life started getting better than my career, I had no idea how to function,
0: right.
5: because
3: it had always been the other way with my career instead of, yeah. of my life, so Um, but when I came out, I remember going to the mainstream clubs and then it was like Ruben's gay. And it was very clear. They had no use for me because whatever it was that I, whatever it is that I am, this version of gay, which by the way, there are many people like me out there. Um, they like their, you know, beer, uh, beer. Homer Simpson says, Marge, I like my beer called to my homosexuals flaming. (laughs) And like, that's kind of what they want. They want this minstrel show, not a real human to talk about those things. Um, and so that really tripped up my career as well. But then I was able to take that mess, turn it into this podcast, which got me on the gay channel on Sirius XM. I begged and begged the executives, put me on any of the political channels. I right. didn't care. Put me on the left channel. Put me on the right channel. Right, right, right. this right. is the nonpartisan channel. Put me on there. Anything. But they were basically like, you're gay. Get, get Do your gay thing over there. And uh so the reason I and the reason I ended that show actually, Sirius wanted us to stay. The reason I ended it was because I used to get more fan mail from people saying, "I love your show. I've never heard anything like this before. You, you're my kind of gay." You know, yeah, blah, yeah. blah blah blah. But they would say, "I can't share your show because I'm I'm closeted." And I started thinking, oh, "This is how messed up this is." The people that I'm I'm nothing special. I'm just someone doing what I what I'm doing. But the people that I'm helping most actually. Are harming me in a certain way because they won't share my stuff. Oh, that's fascinating, and I, and I really. But but that's also related to the political. No, I mean because I, I get I emails see it from that now. Yeah, yeah. I got. It. I'll show it to you. I got a. a To our PO box, a fan sent me this awesome Simpsons poster. He does original Simpsons artwork. It's the coolest. It's a map of Springfield, but done by, like, uh, the way you'd see, like, an old school um, real estate map. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, like, blocks of property and where everything. It's so cool. It's original. He writes me this beautiful note. He's a huge fan. I've helped him wake up politically, all this stuff. And he says, my only request is that you don't tag me on Twitter and (laughs) and put a picture of this because I don't want the mob to come after me. And it's, so I sent him a personal email. Right. But, like, think how, wow. Oh. That, so that's why this, this chapter that I'm working on right now between the, the closet-related... You can be in the closet related to anything. You can be in the closet related to sexuality. You can be in the closet related to your political positions. Yeah. You can be in the closet related to a medical condition that you have or, or just anything that you are hiding from yourself, which becomes just sort of an insidious, destructive force. Uh, and I can tell you this, that the the... the the pain of those things, or the residual effect of those things, they you know they don't just disappear the second you kind of start getting better. They stay with you for your whole life in in many ways. I think.
4: So the reason I want to bring that up is you are considered all right, right? We haven't even mentioned <laughs> well, it so far, right? Like, yeah. but. And I am Thank by you, some by people way. as yeah. well. Yeah. And and I think a lot of the people listening to us right now will find that a little bit ludicrous. But I wanted to bring it up yeah. because you are gay. Yeah. You are married. Yeah. Right. Uh, you are pro-choice, I believe. Yeah, I'm, str- I'm really struggling with that one. But well, I am pro-choice. Um, but the and, more the Democrats go
3: crazy with the late term stuff, it's becoming uh, I'm, I'm starting to see an ethical dilemma that I didn't. Fully see before. I'm also writing about it, and yeah. once you start, as you know, you start written, exploring it. No, you I start really going. Well, what do I really think about these things? But, but yes, I do consider myself pro-choice up into a, up into a point.
4: Yeah, and look, I'm so you were very similar in that, yeah. right? Right. So I'm uh, pro uh, pro gay marriage. Uh, I am, uh, you know, pro-choice. Although I do think it's interesting the way it's getting, you know, even more politicized than it already was. It feels yeah. like. I don't know where you are on the death penalty, but I'm, I'm anti I'm the death penalty. Yeah, so against. these are all things that traditionally. Yeah. Yeah, we're would be, to be like liberals lefties. Huge, Come on, yeah, man. right and yet i think both of us have had this sort of uh, you know it's colloquially i guess the red pill moment right yeah. from uh, the reference to uh, to uh, the the matrix back in the day but when did you start to have sort of your red pill moment was it gradual uh, you know you're in the com- comedy scene you are in the entertainment universe you moved to hollywood uh you know you talk about there's a lot of people i think in the entertainment industry who are in the closet not about their sexuality oh, yeah. but about their politics yeah um, so when did this start to happen for you
3: well i always describe it as if you were looking at my baseball card you'd have my picture on the front and then you'd look at the back and in the back you'd see the stats and you'd go wait a minute gay married pro choice against the death penalty pro legalizing lead i'm for reforming the prison system I'm all, all of those things education. all those
4: things we agree with right, right. All
3: yet, of those things so you go this makes no sense but because right. then it would say under my name it would say dave rubin alt-right yeah. on the front and then yeah, you look yeah. at the stats and you go wait this makes no sense
4: and that's what i have always said about the people who attack me too yeah. uh that, it, that it's just ludicrous, but, but
3: but that's why. But that's why I think, like, when I found someone like you, or I found someone like Candace Owens, or a couple other people that I really identify with, regardless of whether we agree on everything or not, yeah. I'm like, there's something beautiful happening here, and we have to figure out how to nurture it because we come from. You know what I mean? I'm a lifelong New Yorker. You're from Nashville. You're more yeah. in the sports world. Blah blah blah. Straight gay. All those nonsensical markers. Yes. But it's like intellectually it's, we yeah. connect, yeah. and and. And that thing, there's a, it's not a coincidence that we're both thriving right now in crazy times. That's not a coincidence. Right. It's actually evidence that we're doing something right. But but to answer your question, so there were a couple moments that really broke me out of it. Now, I come from a family of New York liberals, Yeah. but but not woke liberals. They were right. liberals in the best sense of it. They were liberals. My parents now are liberals in the JFK sense of liberalism. That's yes. not what your country can do for you. That's what you can do for your country. They loved Mayor Ed Koch, who was a good old-fashioned liberal. They loved Dan Patrick Moynihan, yes, um, real liberals, that that liberals meaning live and let live, but the government has some use, utility yes. to do certain things, right? Um, I think what happened to me was when I moved out here, and I was still, I was a liberal and a lefty and the whole thing, it was when gay marriage was really hot, so before it got passed. Mm-hmm. And I started working at the Young Turks, and they were pretty far-left progressive network. But they were so slamming their fists down about gay marriage in such a passionate way that for, her, for something that was so personal to me that I thought these, these are liberals on steroids. And it was good, it struck me as good. It's like maybe, maybe liberals just needed balls and that's yeah. what these people had and all that. It crumbled very quickly because there. there's a couple moments that it really crumbled. So um, I'll, I'll just blow past two and then I'll, I'll give you the third one because I've told these stories many times. But the first one was when, um, I'm sure you've seen this probably, it was when uh, Sam Harris was on real time with Bill Maher and he got into that fight with Ben Affleck. They were talking about radical Islam. Yeah. And Affleck turns to Bill Maher and Sam Harris. I didn't know who Sam Harris was at the time. Had no idea. But I see this mild-mannered uh, neuroscience yeah. discussing atheism. And Bill Maher, who had been one of my comic heroes, and I'll and the standard bearer of the left, yes. and they talk about radical Islam, making a point: don't be bigoted towards people, Muslims, but you can talk about a set of bad ideas the way you criticize Christianity or Judaism or or the Republican platform or anything right. else. And Affleck turned to them and said, "You know, you're gross and racist." And then and then it was it just sort of derailed from there. And what I saw happen after that was that the next couple of weeks the entire lefty media, HuffPo, Media, Eye, BuzzFeed, everybody was saying Bill Maher is racist. Yes. And Sam Harris is racist. And I watch it live. I mean, I, I've always loved that show. I watch it live and I thought, I don't know who the hell this guy is, but he's not racist. Right. And and I certainly know that Bill Maher is not racist. And, but watching that feeding frenzy. Yeah. And then even my guys on my network started doing it too. And that, so then it really woke up because I I, I was just like, this makes no sense. We have to be able to criticize ideas without being bigoted towards people. But even more, it was that once someone says the racist thing, everyone else on the left basically uses it as an excuse to do scorched earth everywhere. So there was, there was that moment. Then there was, I'm actually not totally sure of the order of these two because they were pretty close. Uh, Charlie Hebdo was a few months after that. Yes. And I was on air at the Young Turks, and one of the hosts was screaming about how you can't make cartoons, you're inciting people. And, and that And for actually, people who
4: don't remember that, yeah. that was like there's a, a, a cartoon making yeah. fun of the Prophet Muhammad. Yeah. And. Uh, and in France. In France, in France yeah. yes. And they stormed the house and tried to execute everybody they there. They
3: murdered several yes. cartoonists, they slaughtered some other people um, and, and th- this idea, though, that if you if you do something that a certain set of people don't want you to do, or that are against their religious yes. beliefs, that you're the bad guy, right? And there seemed to be more sympathy towards them than there were the dead bodies. And if you remember during Charlie Hebdo, there were a couple of days where they hadn't found them, and for those couple of days, it was like those bodies were still were still warm and were and these guys could they ended up killing more people. They went to a kosher supermarket and killed some people there, and it's like the sympathy seemed to be with them, or or at least with people that might be. Thought of as something right. like them, and I thought this is completely out of whack. One of the one of the co-hosts on the show started screaming something about how the the Charlie Hebdo was ninety nine percent of the of uh, the issues were against. Uh, Islam, And I said to him, I was like, I don't know what the percentage is, but I guarantee you it is not 99%. And it's something like this. I'm going to slightly butcher the numbers. It's something like out of 400 plus covers, it was three about yes. Islam. There were far more about the Pope, far more about Orthodox Jews. And by the way, and, they
4: ridiculed everything, right? Like the that's point. the entire purpose. Is like there's no sacred cow, so to speak. Like everything is a target. That
3: was the point. The, in the best sense of what the Simpsons did in its heyday, where you could literally make fun of everybody, the best sense of what Don Rickles would do in a comedy club. Oh, there's an Irish guy there, there's a black guy there,
4: there's a Jew there. Or what there. South Park still does. What, what South to Park
3: do. basically still does, yeah. So then there was that one, and the one that really sort of was the final culmination of everything, do you know a guy by the name of David Webb, who's a XM guy? I don't. He's a he's a conservative, he's on the uh, the right-leaning channel there, and when I was a big lefty on the gay channel at XM, yeah. but I really wanted to do politics, uh, I met him, and we disagreed on basically everything. Yeah. But he was like, come on in, and, we, and I used to go on his radio show all the time, he's a black conservative, Super nice guy. Yep. We used to get drunk after and, and have whiskey and have a good time. And we disagreed on everything. It was fine. Well, one day I was on the Young Turks. And they were playing a clip and he, I think Webb was guest hosting for Sean Hannity that yeah. day. And they're playing the clip of, of Webb and I don't even remember what he was saying, but then suddenly all my co-hosts were saying, what an uncle Tom that guy is. What a sellout. What a, you know, and you knew
4: him well personally,
3: all of the awful things you could say,
4: right about a black conservative,
3: about a black conservative. And, and then it, that was the moment that it fully crystallized because I was like, these people who scream about tolerance all day long now see a black man who does not think the way they believe a black man should think, which is prejudice because they prejudge the fact that he is black. They believe that that means he should prescribe to a certain set of beliefs. And they're doing it in the name of tolerance. And, And I thought, I know David. I know this guy, I've debated all of these issues with him. And I should have said it on air, I didn't. I was, I was actually so dumbstruck that it was yeah. happening in real time that it like, couldn't calibrate properly in my brain. Um, but that was it, I was like, holy cow, these people, these are, these are the new racists. And I really believe that now, and I hate to, it's like I don't wanna become the thing that we're always railing against. Yes. Um, but I think it's important to identify that, as you just said to me on my show, does the KKK exist? Are there some racists? Yes. Are there some homophobes? All those things. Yes. They have no institutional power. They're routinely mocked by everybody. They're not on television. They don't have political power. They should be marginalized or, or ignore. I would basically say ignore them. But right. but when they show up to do something evil or, or whatever, you, you can counter protest and the rest of it. Um, but racists exist. It, 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 it just is. But the new racism is what's coming out of the left these days. The new racism is that we are going to judge you by these things. You may have seen this story in the last couple of days. There was this Detroit rap festival, and they were going to charge yeah, white I people saw. more than black people. And one of the black young woman rappers, young female rappers, she was like, I'm not going to do this. My, my, one of my grandmothers is white. Yeah, And it's like, well, you said this a couple of times in our hour, this idea that this thing will, it has to just crush itself. Yeah. Because it's so antithetical to logic that there's so many competing things happening that it will eat itself. And it's just like what the question really is, what will it take down in the process? of, of In, in this
4: disruptive, and sports is an interesting yeah. microcosm of this because we've talked about it. Like if you have someone, and Caitlyn Jenner now is a good example because I, and I wrote about this in the book, Bruce Jenner, In the 1970s, if he had decided to become Caitlyn Jenner and tried to compete in the Olympics, he was the best male athlete in the world. And what he did, he would be like, I mean, not even in the same stratosphere for the women if he had decided to flip. And you avoid asking those questions, right? Like, sports is an ultimate meritocracy, but the meritocracy is divided as men or women, right? Now, if you want to say, okay, we won't have a a line between men's and women's sports, then women won't play sports. Sports, goodbye, right? goodbye. They him. won't make yeah. any of the high school teams most of the time in soccer or basketball. Certainly not in football, volleyball, whatever you want to play, because men are bigger, stronger, and faster than women. And that's not—if you want to argue biology is sexist, you can have with it. But like that yeah. is the—that's the universe that we live in. And I wonder when it's going to blow up on itself because the logic falls apart as you follow it down its course. And that is what I started to see happening in the world of sports. And I say my you know sort of red pill moment was the universe of Missouri protests, yeah. which were based in totally lies, and everybody covered them, and the football team doesn't play, and everything else, and when you actually examine all the factual underpinnings, it's a house of cards. There's nothing there.
3: Well, that's the thing, and that's why the red pill analogy really works, Yeah, because Morpheus is giving Neo the choice. Do you want to go back and sleep and have some level of comfort in the world in, in your existence, or do you want to see the world as it is? Not as you want it to be, but as it is, and then figure out how to function in that world. And obviously, we know what Neo does. He takes the red pill. And I think for most of the people that probably like what we do, I think what we're doing at the moment is, uh, this is another thing I'm writing about, is we're giving, there's a, there's a major bravery deficit in the world right now. I yeah. don't know exactly why it is. It has something to do with an amorphous mob that will come and destroy everybody. People are
4: terrified of losing their jobs over a Facebook post or right. a Twitter post.
3: And then it's like, so guys like us come around, and I don't know what it is. Like, maybe we could, do, we could get a whole crew of, like, 20 of us and do, like, a mass therapy session. Session. Yeah, people yeah. all find out that you know when we were all seven years old, the bully came around, and, and you guys didn't let him bully like like yeah. some something. Who right. knows what it is? But I think that that people are sort of outsourcing their bravery these days, which yes. is a, which is a weird thing. I, again, I don't think I'm anyone special other than I'm just doing what I think I should do. So I think all of these things lead to a weird place where people from the sports world and the political world, and now I see it. I, I have a friend. Guy lived upstairs from me in New York City his whole life. Lefty, lefty, lefty. Crazy yeah. progressive his whole life. He's a, Get this. You'll love this. He's about 52 years old. He is a straight male choreographer on Broadway. Um, I probably even shouldn't have said that because there's so few. I'm probably going to track him right down. Yeah. But he was, and he's done major stuff and major stuff on TV. And he was, in effect, told in the last year or so, start looking for a new line of work. Because why would anyone ever hire a straight male choreographer, straight white male yeah. choreographer? Now, ironically, if you care about diversity, that's he's the diversity. That bring, because yeah. they're all gay. They're right. all gay, and, and most of them are not white anymore, and all that. Nobody cares. Nobody cares right. about you. You care. I mean, that's the thing. They've tricked everyone into thinking that we all care about these things. And I, you know, it's like I just traveled the world for a year with Jordan Peterson. And I'm supposed, supposedly he's all right. And we're, yeah. you know, speaking to angry racists. And it's like all, it was a love fest. Like you could not believe every single night, every single night.
1: Fox sports radio has the best sports talk lineup in the nation. Catch all of our shows at foxsportsradio.com, And within the iHeartRadio app, search FSR to listen live.
5: Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit Lisa.com slash iHeart. That's L-E-E-S-A dot com slash iHeart.
1: Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year
4: You talked about the way that the Bill Maher story was covered by, like, the Huffington Post and all these different places. You regularly get attacked in the media. I regularly get attacked in the media. Why do you think that happens? Well, I think that— Because we just went through and said, like, all of the things— Like, if you put our political beliefs on a baseball card on the back, you would be like— I'm curious why that is because I think both of us are very middle of the road, right? But in a weird way, we're the biggest threat to them. And that's an interesting point.
3: Right, so if you're middle of the road now and especially so the one the one identity politics thing that i
4: have over you is the is the gay thing Yeah. Right? so they so I have i have none by the way so i'm just have, a straight white guy i'm i right. like the, so on can the sorta, on the victim victimization pyramid i'm i'm nowhere near the top right, right? so they
3: can pin you a little bit more easily they, yeah. you know what i mean like that that's a little bit more easy the reason that that i get as much hate as i do and i'm even seeing it from some of the good liberals now where they're turning on me a little bit because it's something that you referenced earlier uh, on my show is they they will always try to throw something else under the bus to extend their life, their shelf life, basically, yeah. and that's what they're always doing. Now, what they—I don't know if they know it or not—but ultimately, you're just pulling the the pins out from underneath your own your own foundation. Let's say, um, I think basically what's happening here is that for me, it's like they look at the baseball card, gay guy, blah blah blah, all these liberal beliefs but I survived. I talk about their nonsense, and I survived. And not only did I survive, I thrived. Yep. So they really have to extract a high cost on me. So when th- when they're throwing down hate on me, it's not really that they're trying to destroy me anymore. I do think in some ways I've, I, I wanna knock on wood when I say this, but I sort of feel like I've, I've crossed a threshold. You survived. Where I'll, where I'll yeah. be okay, right? And I know how to deal with it. What they're really trying to do is signal to everybody else you see what we're going to do to you if, if you, you do try this? to, sit you know. And that's why the hate on Candace is so out of control. All Candace is doing. Look, I don't agree with everything she said. She sent out a tweet about um, if you burn the flag, you know, you've got like a year to like give up your citizenship. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Over the top and nuts. And by the way, I'm having dinner with her in a couple weeks, and I'll bring it up. Yeah, you know, yeah. It's yeah. like, and people were like, you better condemn her publicly condemn her it's yeah like, yeah I don't want public condemnation public, I better publicly condemn my yes. friends you yes. know, it's like I can just for
4: everything that they disagree with yeah, right it's
3: like it's so stupid but but like we disagreed
4: message. we when we went out to dinner I don't think she would like they had the uh, the Guardians of the Galaxy guy had lost his you remember the Disney oh right
3: James Gunn yeah, yeah and
4: I was like yeah. I think they gave it back to him they now. did they did and my thing is like I don't want to set the precedent of going through every single word that everybody's ever said the guy's a good director right mm-hmm. I loved Guardians of the Galaxy one and Guardians Guardians of the Galaxy, 2. Same thing. Kevin Hart, I think, is a pretty good comedian. Yeah. I think he should have been able to host the Oscars. Of course, notwithstanding what he said ten years ago on Twitter. Right. So he
3: makes some gay jokes ten years ago on Twitter, and then uh, I mean, this is the, this is how perverse and twisted this thing is. He then goes on Ellen DeGeneres, America's favorite lesbian. He yes. goes on her show. She says. I, you're I good i understand you're, yeah and then what do they do they try
4: to destroy her for accepting his apology and it's
3: like what what do you people want you people mock religious people all the time and yet religious people have a redemption narrative yeah. have some forgiveness. forgiveness matters all of these things yeah. you guys have become far worse than than those things what the hell
4: was the question there uh <laughs> no i was we were tying in like talking about the 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 why the target. Like, oh, so I so I think partly it's that. So I've escaped. Candace's
3: message is black people don't have to be Democrats. Any sane person would think that's a that's, totally reasonable that. message. But but they have to extract a high cost on her. You can't just be a, a black girl saying what you think and just walk out there and yeah, say, right. So they so they and want say to that, that
4: modern liberalism has actually caused more problems. You know, I mean, like yeah, trust but, me, it it's not fun for me to say that. Right. You
3: know, and I I, I say this all the time. I would love to be proven wrong here. If the ending of my story and my success is that the left somehow reconstitutes itself, brings, brings the roots of liberalism back... And I, my choice was, which is what I say all the time now, I see so much more opportunity on the right to talk to the never-Trumpers as well as the MAGA people, as well as the conservatives and the yep. libertarians and the ANCAPs. There's such an interesting fight of ideas happening right. over there, and I get invited to all of these things. I get standing ovations despite telling them five policies that I disagree with them on. I can't get one
4: invite the other way. Oh, it's fascinating but in if respect. I if,
3: if I get proven wrong at the end of this— if liberalism returns, and I'm wrong, because it has returned being reconstituted from the left, I will have a Mia culpa. I will retire and disappear. You'll never hear from me again. And I, I promise you I'll
4: be thrilled. I'll, I'll go be in the NBA, the, w, the WNBA. <laughs> uh, so how did you meet Jordan Peterson? And how did that tour come about and what was yeah. that experience like on your life? And for people out there who might not know Jordan Peterson because they, they're listening to us right now, yeah. who is he and, and kind of how did, how did he climb in relevance? So Jordan is a
3: Canadian psychologist who had a clinical practice and as well as he was teaching at University of Toronto, but he had taught at Harvard before and had a great academic career for like 30 years, but a normal...
4: Brilliant guy, but a normal dude otherwise. Yeah,
3: a normal academic career. Like yeah. it was not somebody chasing fame or any of those things. Right. Then a couple years ago, they there was this bill trying to be passed in, in Canada bill uh, C17 which would would have criminalized either by a financial penalty or potentially even jail if you misgendered someone literally if you walked up down you were walking down the street and you said hi ma'am and it turned out to be a guy That's you a could, crime. You could, that would have been a crime and all he said was i have no problem with trans people Um, I'm a clinical psychologist. I've dealt with these issues, but I do not want the government to, uh, uh, to be able to impose speech. And certainly I don't want the government to be able to punish you for it. That then became an incredibly controversial thing. Everyone says he's a transphobe. He's a homophobe, blah, blah, blah. And then what happened was, I'm sure it's the way it is for, for you too. When you start finding out about people, you start seeing something bubbling up on Twitter and people kept saying, Ruben, you got to talk to this Peterson guy. This was in, um, November of 2016, so like days before the Trump election. Trump was elected, yeah. yeah. And we had just moved into this house on November 1st, 2016, so my studio was being built, and I didn't have a studio yet, so I did a Google Hangout with him. I had never met him in person, first time we ever said hello. We had a crappy internet connection here. It's popping in and out the whole time. It's, it's pixelated, our audio's off. I do an hour talk with this guy talking about psychology and gender problems right. and all these things. He tells a story about, which he tells often now, this story about the story of Pinocchio, and that you have to wish upon a star, and what lying can do, right. and all these things. And he's crying, he's literally crying as he's doing it. And we finished the interview, and I, I turned to David, who's my husband and producer, and I said, that guy is either an absolute genius or completely insane. Yeah. There's no middle ground. Right. right. I don't know which it is. Subsequently, over the last couple of years, I've, I've interviewed him many times. We did a couple of public speaking things together, and then he wrote this book. Uh, it's right there. It's called yep. Twelve Rules for Life, which is basically it's it's uh, the the under title or the secondary title is an antidote to chaos. And basically, he's trying to tell people just get your. You know, everyone wants to fix the world first. Yeah. Everyone wants to just I can fix everything. I know all the policies. I can fix everything. How about you fix yourself first? How about you make you're wearing a shirt that fits yeah how about you have a haircut that that is right you know what i mean how about you brush your teeth like some some seriously basic stuff right but that somehow especially for young men but it's not just young men i mean the the media tries to portray it that he's just talking to angry young men and yeah it's just, it's just not true um, but he has given something to people that I've now seen all over the world. I've seen we've performed in front of hundreds of thousands of people who desperately needed this message of personal responsibility and and taking pride in yourself and and that the individual is the, the essence of Western society yeah. and all of those things. The way we ended up on tour together was I had him in here one day with Ben Shapiro. It was the three of us talking. This is uh, last January, so about a year and a half ago, and he was doing his first test show at the Orpheum downtown, it's a great theater down about 3,000 seats, he was doing it that night, and as he was walking out the door, and we really just knew each other a little bit at that point, I said, hey, you know, if you want me to come down tonight, I'll warm up the crowd, I'll make some lobster jokes because he does some lobster analysis or some metaphors. Uh, I said I'll make I'll make some jokes and then I'll get out of your way and, and he was without even hesitating he was like absolutely come on down I went down there I, I just crushed it I knew all the right references to make with his crowd and yeah. the whole thing and all his agents from CAA were there and they came up to me after and they were like you know who you with what are you doing I was with WME yeah but I was like alright let's move and I went with them and then the tour started and as I said a hundred some
4: odd stops and and sold you know, out all over the out. country and he and it, it went over to England like
3: we, we went to England we went to Denmark, we went to Ireland, we went to Sweden, Copenhagen, Helsinki, Um, we went to Australia, I couldn't go to New Zealand because I had some other commitments, I mean, all over the world, and to see, this is the cool thing, so when when we talk about how you come from a sports perspective, and say I come from a political perspective, when you see something else, when you see that some guy, I was buying a cap one day, I was buying a hat at H&M in Sweden, I just needed a hat that day, it was windy, I was like, I'm going to put hairspray in, I'm getting a hat. I go into H and M to buy a hat. There's one guy in line, and I hear him talking. And he's telling the cashier, "He goes, I'm buying. this. He goes, this is my first suit I've ever bought. I'm going to see Jordan Peterson tonight." And the cashier goes, "I'm going to see Jordan Peterson tonight." And then I just walked up behind them. The cashier is looking at me because I'm standing yeah. behind the other guy, Dave Rubin.
4: Yeah, and I was. And you're like, like, I'm going to see. Uh, Jordan I'm, Peterson. Said, I'm, that's yeah, exactly yeah. what I said. I yeah, said yeah. I'm
3: going to see Jordan Peterson tonight too. And that's when I started realizing because this this thing kept happening all over the place, where. There was a time we boarded a plane, and we're sitting in the front row, and uh, this young black guy, probably like 22, 23 years old, who was working at at the airline, you know, he had one of the, you know, like, bright vests on, he was working on the bridge or whatever, they were trying to close the door, and he ran up to Jordan. He said, I, "He said I, they could fire me for this, but I've got to tell you, you changed my life. I got this job because of you. You saved my life. I I, I started caring about myself and all these things, and I saw that relentlessly happen forever. And uh, it was it was incredible. It, it changed my life. You can't if you're around something that, that that's that good and real and honest." for that long and it doesn't change your life you got no hope you know
4: i will close out here uh because i know you got a ton of stuff, things going on i gotta get do my my television show uh which is a good problem to yeah, have too is, right yeah, good yeah, set yeah. of problems yeah, yeah. i
3: say I say it all the time uh, you got
4: to get on your television shows i got to go do my television shows um you mentioned those guys shapiro peterson yourself myself actually a lot of differences of opinion yeah Yet you can have a sit and have a rational conversation. And I think that's what appeals to people so much. Why do you think rational conversation has suddenly become the province of what would people say the Republican Party? It would have been the exact opposite twenty years ago. Yeah. Right? So look,
3: these things ebb and flow, which is why I would tell people not to become too attached to a party. Right. It's a party. If you're attached to a party, you're just attached to a platform, which is really just attached to a person. Yes. And so you shouldn't be attached to that What You should be attached to would be a basic set of ideals. So in my case, I believe that this, the the ideas that I talk about about classical liberalism, I believe, are the right set of ideals. Um, it would be a whole other show to really dive in, yeah. dive into all that stuff. But Shapiro, for example, so Shapiro is an Orthodox Jew. He yes. has a religious belief that is against gay marriage. Yes. Now, there are Christian conservatives that have that belief in evangelicals. And as a gay and,
4: guy, you're not offended by that opinion, right? Like, you can have...
3: That is the very opinion that society for thousands of years yes. held. Now, I could run around and think that everyone that existed before me was an evil, bigoted, homophobe, right. and a bigot, you know, racist, and all these things. Or, and, and this is really what I believe. So one of the nights um, that... Jordan and I were doing a different show in L.A., I said to Ben, "I said, why don't you come on stage tonight?" And We've had this running thing where Ben and I, in this very studio, which is in my home where I live yes. with my husband, where I know Ben disagrees with me from his own personal religious perspective. Yes. But by the way, he takes the libertarian approach when it comes to policy, so he's, he wants religion out of it. So I, I'm okay with that. I, right? I, we got 320 million people in this country; they're allowed to believe what they want. They can't legislate my life. Right. But we've had this running joke about uh, that Ben won't bake me a, a gay wedding cake. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So I said, Ben, why don't you come on stage tonight? You'll do your. I'll bring. You on, you'll do your thing. And I said, Why don't you bring me a cake on stage? So I go up there, do my thing for 10 minutes, crowd's going nuts. Um, And then I said, we got a surprise guest. Benchmeyer, he walks out with a cupcake. People are going bananas. I mean, bananas. (laughs) He then, he says a couple things about giving me this cake. Then he does a Jordan Peterson impression. He walks off. Crowd goes nuts. And I'm in a room now, 3,000 people, celebrating the fact that these two people have have a different view on life, but can break bread or cupcakes with each other. I then look onto, you know, we tweet the video out and a couple of pictures of it. And, you know, 95% of it good, but... Because I get so many tweets, there's hundreds of tweets from tolerant progressives saying there's the self-hating gay and the homophobe and who's more pathetic or some version of that or, or just, right. you know, all the other words that they can say about us. And this is the flip that I think most people have to understand about tolerance. So why has it become so rare? It's because the, this woke thing has become a secular religion, as my friend Peter Bogosian calls it. There is no redemption narrative, and none of those things exist. They, they want, there's a reason they want to destroy history. There's a reason they want to redefine words like owner when it comes to NBA owners. There's a reason that they want to take down monuments. There's a reason that they want to, I mean, ISIS, what does ISIS do? It goes into Syria and it blows apart things that have existed for thousands of years. Wait until they come for Mount Rushmore, because they will. The Obama Library, which is being built now, when the radical, woke radicals, if, ever, if they win, they will take that down because he was against gay marriage. You mentioned the one, uh, which I think is, is the one for the next generation. When they find out that we ate meat, we used to kill cattle who were putting methane out into the CO2 and da-da-da-da-da. They will look at us the way you might look at your grandparents and think, oh, they didn't know asbestos was was killing them, or like some version of all of those things. So that's what we have to fight. And 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 by the way, I do think that most people are pretty freaking decent. I think that most people wanna live in a society with other people. I would much rather talk to people I disagree with, um, as a rule. When I go to colleges, I, I do a talk for like an hour, and I always, every single time without exception, I say, if you disagree with me, you come up first to ask a question. Yeah. And it's like, I keep getting invited by conservatives, but I can't get any of these tolerant lefties or liberals to invite me. Maybe, maybe they will one day.
4: Last question for you. We're in LA. We had a couple of earthquakes. Uh, (laughs) We're in your studio and looks like so far the the lights are holding on. Uh, But uh, what do you think? You said you were a big NBA fan or grew up a big basketball fan. What do you think about Kawhi and Paul George to the Clippers and now LeBron and Anthony Davis, the Lakers? Will you go to games this year?
3: So I'll give you one just quick NBA thing. I think I told you this last time. So my, my hero in life, uh, it was Clyde Drexler. who yeah. was on the Blazers for years and lost in the finals a couple times, then lost in the Western Conference finals. And when he was thought of as much older, he was traded to the Rockets and won the championship that year. And that... Um that story always stuck with me that this guy who i loved who was who was amazing but but because he was in portland was sort of ignored by the media and he wasn't jordan he just wasn't jordan right he played the same position and wasn't jordan but and he kept getting close kept getting close but then finally got there it became ingrained in me that if i kept doing something i would get there and this is in contrast to there one of my best friends who was a comic by the name of mike singer and you've never heard of mike singer not because he wasn't a great comic but he was from chicago and his whole life he was a huge Cubs fan and this is before they won the you know the World Series in the last couple of years Mike's story the story he had been telling himself his whole life was based around the Cubs you're, you're never going to win you're never going to win and he eventually gave up and I, th- I think there's a connection there my story that I told myself stories have value and, and the athlete who I loved the most it took him a long ass time and people said he was washed up at that point and he had you know blah 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 but he got there and that really got ingrained in me. Um, so as for the as for the Lakers now, I mean Kawhi, the fact that he's you know bounced around from the Spurs and then just did this with Toronto. You know, can the Clippers ever really be good? Can the Clippers actually make a Western Conference Finals? And I, I would love to go to some games this year. I, I just haven't had freaking time. Yeah. You know, I also you know I'm doing all right on YouTube, but I don't have that kind of money. You know, I'm not making <laughs> Clay Travis plenty of. Hey,
4: look, uh, it could disappear in a heartbeat. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And I think you will be when the new book comes out. But yeah. we need to talk again. We need to go to a movie, uh, go to an NBA game, and also when you're in Nashville, we need to hang out. As I'm well. going
3: to do some stand up there with yeah. all those nice people, and I'll bring you on stage. With no, that'll and be awesome. Yeah.
4: Uh, you can follow them if you're not familiar with him, Dave Rubin at Rubin Report. The new book will be out in May. It's uh, coming out in May 2020. And it'll be up on Amazon and everywhere else soon. We'll share tell, the I link. I wish I
3: could tell you the name. We're like two <laughs> weeks off.
4: Uh, I can't wait to check it out. Seriously, yeah. appreciate the time. I hope yeah, people enjoyed uh, our version with you as well. But this is awesome. It's been great to yeah. get to know you.
3: It's nice to do something else in my studio. Yeah, yeah, See yeah, how yeah. even sitting there? For I know, you can I, chill. You don't have to yeah. worry
4: yeah. about being on camera. Yeah. Uh, this has been Wins and Losses. I'm Clay Travis. He's Dave Rubin. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoy it. Let me know what you think. As always, we'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. Be sure to catch live editions of Outkick, the coverage with Clay Travis weekdays at 6 a.m. Eastern,
1: 3 a.m. Pacific. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, It's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it.